I want to continue this morning with our series called Hope for Tomorrow. Hope for Tomorrow. And uh, this is part two. But Jesus was given to us by God Himself. God before time uh, chose a bride for His Son. And then He sent His Son to... Uh, he sent His Son to save her, and then the Holy Spirit birthed her. And this is how the gospel story goes. But as Jesus was sent to the earth, people immediately started having hope everywhere. People heard about this king that was born in Bethlehem and everywhere in the known world where people heard of Him, they became hopeful. And we see that even the wise men traveled very far. There aren't three of them. There were many wise men. And all their caravans, they traveled to search for Jesus. They found Him. And some theologians and historians believe it was like Jesus was really two years old by the time they found Him. And they came bearing gifts, worshiping Him. Why? Because they had so much hope and expectation that they placed in Him. So today, I want to ask the question, what kind of hope can we have because God gave us Jesus? What kind of hope can the world, a fallen world, have because Jesus was born on the earth? He was called Emmanuel, and Emmanuel is God with us. Now that God is with us, what can, what can we hope in? What kind of hope can we have as Christians? Now, every human being needs hope. There isn't one person that is without this need. If you're a married individual, you hope for your marriage. If you're a parent, you have hope for your children. As we grow older, we have hope for a healthier body. When we go to school, we have hope for certain outcomes, that it will benefit us in a, in a specific way. Driving here today, you had a certain hope that you placed upon what to expect. Your expectation basically was based on the hope that you have. So it doesn't matter who you are in life, you need hope. You exercise hope. You practice hope. Somebody goes, well, somebody, I know somebody who's completely hopeless. Well, even the person who takes their own life, they do that in hope of something. The reason a person would do that is because they hope that a certain pain will end. Everybody does what they do based on the hope they have. Hope drives us. Hope sustains us. Hope determines the decisions we make. Hope plays a bigger role in your life than you realize. As I mentioned earlier on last week, that just like your lungs need oxygen to breathe, so your soul needs hope to survive. We cannot survive without it. It is a suffocating experience to walk through this life without hope. 
But the church of Jesus Christ is the hope of this world because we hold on to the hope that were given to us by God. In order to make biblical hope more understandable, practical, something we can wrap our minds around and then place our hearts on, we started talking about the two sides of the grace of God. It's like the grace of God is a two-sided coin. On the one side, you have God's common grace. On the other side, you have God's saving grace. God's common grace is God's goodness, common to all people. God's common grace is His goodness that He bestows on all, every person that has ever been born, all humans. No matter if they're good or if they're bad, whether they're good or evil, God bestows His grace on them. God is good to the righteous and the unrighteous alike. God's common grace allows for every single human being to experience the sunrise this morning. That is God's goodness in our lives. When you see the sunrise, you can, you can just proclaim God's goodness as you see His common grace. You can thank Him for His common grace when that sun rises. God causes His rain to fall upon all. And when you see that, you can thank God for His common grace under which we live in this world. It's common unto all. In real life, in a working definition, the meaning of God's common grace is that He has allowed all of humanity to develop in, develop in many ways. They couldn't develop if there was no rain. It was God's rain that allowed them to develop their business, to sow, to harvest, to reap, and then to sell. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that one sows, another one waters, but only God can make things grow. So when you see something grow, you've got to know that this is the common grace of God. After Adam sinned in the garden, the world and everyone in it deserved one thing, and that was destruction and death eternal hell. But the common grace of God has allowed us to still be blessed even in this fallen world with this cursed earth. This is the common grace of God because it is grace unto all. Then also, God, because of His common grace upon the human race, has decided to not just kill every single one of His enemies immediately. He has decided to be patient with them. This is His common grace. Aren't you glad that God was patient with you? I'm thinking back to my, my teens and my 20s all the way until now, and I'm just saying, God, thank you for your patience. <laughs> God has been patient with me, and therefore I need to understand when I see God being patient with another, no matter how evil they are. But this is the common grace of God. This is why we can have hope, because we recognize and we see that God exercises His common grace on a daily basis. James 1 verse 17 says this, Every good and perfect gift is from above. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. God is the same. That's why the sun rose this morning. 
God is the same. That's why the seasons continue. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's why you and I haven't been crushed by the sin in our lives. That's why, we, that's why God is patient. Some of you have loved ones that are living a very rebellious life. God is sustaining them, patient with them, that they may come to Him. So God's common grace here is seen in James 1.17 that all good things come from God means that every good, beneficial, and profitable invention like the light bulb flows from the common grace of God. It's something we can put our hope in. I don't, be, I don't believe that the, that the sky is falling. Why not? Because of the common grace of God. I don't believe <clears throat> that you should sell your goods, and move into a bunker because of the common grace of God. I don't believe necessarily that, I'm not, I'm not saying being stupid about it, of course you have to have wisdom, but the common grace of God allows us to keep developing as civilization. Because every good and beneficial and profitable invention, like the light bulb, flows from the common grace of God, and the common grace of God cannot be snuffed out by man's evil deeds. The common grace of God cannot be snuffed out and stopped by a, an evil element within the rulers of the day. The common grace of God remains constant toward you and I. It means that every helpful medicine or life-sustaining technology that we have today flows from the common grace of God. Every form of civil government that establishes justice and, and peace flows from the common grace of God. I mentioned this last week, but if you and I could go to the airport right now and we could get onto an airplane and somehow fly to a different era in the history of humanity, which era would you like to fly to and live at? Not visit, live in. Live in. I, I would like to live in this era right here <laughs> because the common grace of God has allowed us to experience a certain level of opportunity, prosperity, protection, and freedom that, that other generations or ages have not known. This is the most prosperous humanity has ever experienced, the most prosperous era. Can you imagine people now have like over a hundred billion dollars? Like who, who ever could have imagined in the past that any one human being could have that much personal wealth? More millionaires are created on an annual basis right now than ever. More multi-millionaires, more billionaires. I mean, it's, it's, it's an amazing thing how the common grace of God has allowed people to experience good. Now, a lot of people take that good and they do evil things with it. I get that. But that doesn't mean it wasn't that God wasn't initially good and man ended up being evil with the good he received right? I'm sure that Bill Gates or whoever is now wealthy, I'm sure they do evil things with their wealth, but it doesn't mean that God wasn't good by making opportunities available to all, every human being. Now, every person will stay accountable to God for what they did with what they received. I will, be an account, I will remain accountable to God for the opportunities that He offered me in this life and what I did with it. I will one day give an account for that, and so will He. 
My point is that God's goodness is without, is, is without change. Again, I'll read James 1.17. Every good and perfect gift is from God. Coming down from the Father of the heavenly light, who does not change. He does not change. Like shifting shadows, He's always the same. And so we see that God offers common grace to all. That's why we have hope for us in this world. God made it possible for you to live in this world because of His common grace. On the other side of that coin, we now see God's saving grace. God's saving grace is obviously not always evident in every human being's life. God's common grace is evident in every human being's life. God's saving grace, not so. Therefore, it is possible for a person to live under God's common grace, succeed in this life because of God's common grace, yet never experience God's saving grace that works eternally and internally in them. That is why some people may build a Fortune 500 company and lose their own soul. They can, in worldly terms, reach the highest of highs because of God's common grace, yet still damn their own souls to hell because they have not experienced God's Saving grace. Therefore, your hope is to see God's hand work in your life on both sides of that coin. Your hope is to see the hand of God work on both sides with both graces, the common grace and saving grace in your children's lives, in your spouse, in your marriage, and in all your loved ones. I want to see God's grace poured out in huge measures both common grace, but definitely saving grace. I would much rather my loved ones experience the saving grace of God and have very little common grace. Don't you think? And that's why when you say something like, my goal for my son is, is to really, and for my daughter, is to really understand the Word of God and have the Word of God have a major impact in their lives long before I've even thought about his schooling, her schooling, or their college. And people go like, well, that's a, you know, well, if you think about it deep enough and long enough from the perspective of God's common grace and saving grace, you understand what I'm saying. So our hope is that God's common grace will be multiplied in our lives so we can experience a happy family, healthy, a strong career um, with uh, enough provision needed. But secondly, and most importantly, we want to see that our hope is upon God's effective grace in our lives, not only that our hearts be regenerate and born again, but also so that God's sanctifying work will continue through our lives. You see, it is the effectual grace of God, the effective and effectual grace of God that doesn't only birth you anew into a new creature, but also sanctifies you from here on out. It is the work of God that brings somebody from being completely in bondage to sin 
in the world where God saves him with his saving grace, but he also saves them by sanctifying him. What kind of salvation is that? It's saving you from sin. God saves you eternally, your nature, and then he saves you from the sin in your life by sanctifying you. Are you all with me today? All right. So we, I'm saying this to you. Why? Because it's so important for you to understand that when we have hope, we have hope for certain reasons. When people say Jesus brought so much hope into this world, we have to ask, well, what kind of hope are we looking at? We're looking at all the hope that God's common grace provides, and we're looking at all the hope that God's saving grace provides to us. Common grace so that we can build a life in this fallen world. Saving grace so that we can be turned into a new person with a brand new heart, brand new desires, and be sanctified out of the sin that so easily besets us. So we have a hope, not just for ourselves, but for our loved ones and for those that God has placed within our reach. Because of the grace of God, we have so much hope in this world. Because of the grace of God, we have a hope for the world hereafter. So it's possible for a person to live under God's common grace, but not God's saving grace. Today we're going to look at the concept of hope as taught by the Apostle Paul. Now, he taught a tremendous amount about hope, but today we just really want to zone in on a specific basic concept of hope. When a person says, man, I have great hope for something, there are certain things that are true for this person. You see, we've all been hardwired to hope. You were built by God, knit together in your mother's womb as a creature that hopes. Everybody hopes. This is what you do, just like you breathe in the same way you hope. That's why I mentioned there's nobody that's so hopeless that they have zero hope for absolutely anything. Even the person who takes their own life hopes for something. That's why they're doing it, right? So we have been wired, hardwired for hope. We project into the future things as we would like to see them. We imagine things as we would like to see them. We imagine a marriage as we would like to experience. We imagine futures for our children as we would like for them to have. These are things we hope for. We were wired to do this. We all walk through life with personal hopes. We all walk through this life with personal dreams. We were wired to do that. We all hope in something and we all hope for something. We hope in something and we hope for something. Now, hope always, if you use deductive reasoning, has three parts to it. The first is hope always evaluates. Secondly, hope always has an object. And then thirdly, hope always has an expectation that he demands from that object. All right, so let's just quickly walk through this because I want you to understand the makeup, the engineering of this thing called hope that you and I have, that we live by, that we exercise daily, 
And remember, as I mentioned earlier on, every single thing you do in your life is driven by your hope for it. Why do you go to school? Because you hope for certain things. Why do you send your kids to college? Because you have a certain hope. Why do you go for an interview on the job? You have a certain hope. Why do you keep going to work? Because you have a certain hope for a different future. Everything you do is driven by your hope. So we have to find out, in order to make sure that we don't crumble from the root up, that we understand what makes hope. And so the first is evaluation. You see, hope evaluates everything in life and then assesses if something could be better in any way. That's what hope does. So hope evaluates. You know what? My marriage, there's something that can be improved. Therefore, I hope for a marriage one day that has that improvement in it. See, every time you start evaluating, every time you hope, you are actually evaluated and you saw that something could be better than what it already is and you want it to be better. You see, if, if it can be better, we immediately start hoping for it. But truth is, if things were perfect already and couldn't in any way be improved on, we wouldn't need hope at all. So hope always first evaluates. Secondly, hope always has an object. It is a thing that you bank your hope on. And to put it in practical terms, if you hope your pain will go away, you might just bank on that medicine that the doctor just subscri uh, prescribed to you, right? You're banking on that medicine the doctor gave you to now numb or heal the pain that you have. It's the object of your hope. In this case, the object of your hope is that new medicine. In a different context, if you hope that your 401k is going to skyrocket in 2021, you might put your hope on the stock market. You know, the different stocks that you invested into. And so what I'm, what I'm showing you is that in this case, the object you place your hope in is the stock market. Your hope has an object it looks toward and then places a demand on that object to bring you the change you expect. Number three, hope has an expectation. So we see that it first evaluates, oh, change is necessary. Now I'm going to identify an object, and I'm going to say, I'm going to believe that this object is going to bring the change necessary. So now I'm going to put an expectation upon that object. So hope always has expectation. You demand, a certain, you demand a certain degree of performance from the object of your hope. You say that, you demand a certain degree of expectation of, your, of the object or from the object of your hope. You placed an expectation on that new medicine. <laughs> you better work because, <laughs> man, this is really hurting. And I want to see change take place. The expectation placed on that medicine is to remove your pain. Also, you placed an expectation on that stock market. 
that it is to grow your 401k. I'm putting a demand on that object to bring me the change I'm hoping for. So your expectation is what you ask the object of your hope to deliver. My expectation is what I'm asking the object of my hope to deliver to me. This is important to understand because we're going to put it into a context after we understand it. We're going to put it into a scriptural context to make it real for us. You see, the hopeful teenager has a high expectation as he looks to his dad to buy him his first car. <laughs> He's really looking forward to that, new, to that car of his. And guess what? He knows right now, everywhere I go, I have, to, I have to catch a ride. I have to wait for mom to take me. I have to wait for dad to take me. I have to walk there. I have to take, get on my bicycle. But man, you see, I've evaluated that situation. I want that changed. What do I want? I want freedom. And so what do I need to get that freedom? I need a car. All right, so I, I've evaluated what I need to see change. And now what I've done is I've found the one who can bring that change to me. And who is that? The object of my hope, and that is my dad. And so now this teenager is going to put a demand upon his father to deliver the change he's looking to have. Does this make sense to you guys? All right. On the other hand, the hopeful father, he has a high expectation as he looks to his teenage son to score straight A's in this next year. You know, so the father has found his uh, object upon which he puts his hope, and that's his son, to be diligent so that he can have straight A's. The hopeful politician has high expectations as he looks to his voter base to show up and vote. So you cannot have hope if you don't first see what needs to change. You cannot have hope if you don't secondly first find the object upon which you can put your hope. And you cannot have hope if you don't place a demand upon that object to deliver the change you require. There are, however, two sources we can look to produce hope in our lives. Objects, the object of our hope can go into two different categories. It can go into first what I call horizontal hope, which means sourcing our hope from earthly things like medicines that give hope or the stock market that promises a hopeful quarter or physical possessions that are valuable or relationship that produces hope like your rich uncle whoever or the girl that's going to say yes to you when you ask her to marry her or education and everything <laughs> your child can gain from for going to college. Those are all what I call horizontal hopes. So if you are putting a hope upon a father, a rich uncle, a husband, a boss, that is a horizontal hope. If you're putting your hope on the stock market, if you're putting your hope on the dollar, if you're putting your hope on the government, these are all horizontal hopes. See, The problem with horizontal hopes is this. Are you ready? Horizontal hopes, every single one of them, whether it be a person, an institution, or a currency, the problem with horizontal hopes is that it's all part of the fallen world. It's all broken already. It's unreliable and cannot be trusted. It is not secure. And as long as you're putting something horizontal as your object of hope, 
the object upon which you put your hope. You will have an uncertain and insecure life. You are setting yourself up for what's a disappointment. Secondly, not only is it part of a fallen and broken world, therefore dysfunctional, it is also you putting your hope in something that is completely temporal. It goes away. People go away from you. Uh, opportunities leave you. Things are broken and they are unreliable. The second thing is that they are temporal in the sense that even if it is, let's say, gold that usually keeps its value, it doesn't matter how much of it you have, you realize you lose every bit of it, every single ounce, the moment you breathe your last. It's gone. Jesus gives us this example. And he, he's talking about this man who things were going really well for him. And then this man said, well, what am I going to do? I know what I'm going to do, he says to himself. I am going to pull down all of these, these silos and all these storehouses. I'm going to build bigger ones. And then I'm going to store everything into big storage because, you know, I'm going to have enough for my old age. But Jesus says, that night God comes to me and says, you fool, tonight your life will be required of you, will be taken from you. And then who's going to take everything that you have? Who, who is going to receive all of what you have stored away? What a fool you are for being rich toward self instead of rich toward God, Jesus said. So that's the second big problem with having horizontal hopes. If the object of your hope is horizontal, you're setting yourself up for a major disappointment in this life and all the way through to the end of this life. But our second object of hope is, of course, vertical hope. The hope that we put in God, His Word, and His promises. That means God's Word is the object upon which you place your hope in. The Apostle Paul refers to this vertical kind of hope when he wrote Romans 5 verse 5. And it says, And hope does not disappoint. And hope does not disappoint. Paul was not referring here to horizontal hope because how many of you know that horizontal hope disappoints? We've already been trained in it, but somehow we're always misplacing our hope. We're always taking our hope off of what we think God says or know God says onto what we have a lot of confidence in. But how many of you know hope always disappoints? And here Paul says, but hope does not disappoint. The reason Paul was able to say that, because he was not referring to, verdict, to, to horizontal hope. He was absolutely referring to vertical hope. Your hope, the object of your hope, when it is a scripture. <coughs> when the object of your hope is the very word that comes from God to you. And if you put your hope in that object, then, he says, it never disappoints. 
according to the Apostle Paul, in many different translations, it doesn't just say that hope never disappoints. It says that hope will never embarrass you. Another translation says that hope never fails us. It is constant. It is secure. And it is the kind of hope that delivers true joy. True joy. Now, don't forget this picture that I put in your mind last week of this young little boy. His dad calls him. His dad's a real faithful man. And his dad says to him, son, guess what? No, what, dad? He says, Friday, in three days' time, I'm taking you and your sister to Disney for a whole entire month. The boy just bursts with enthusiasm, jumps up and down. What just happened there? Because this boy knows his dad never lies, therefore can trust his dad's character. Because he can trust his dad, therefore he can believe the words that are coming out of his dad's mouth. And because he can believe the words that are coming out of his dad's mouth, he can believe them, therefore he has hope that they are going to pay out what they promised. And that boy would take it to the bank that by Friday he was going to be on his way to Disney for a month. That was his hope for that coming Friday. Therefore, his father's, the trust that he had in his father's character allowed him to believe his father's words. And because he believed his father's promise, he had hope for that Friday. And because he had hope for that Friday, he naturally just burst with joy. All right, so you're able to have true joy when your, faith, when your hope is upon an object that never changes, that never disappoints, that never fails you. That's why you and I can actually be joyful and rejoice in our hope. Because only He is able to give you the life that your heart seeks. There isn't anything horizontal, there isn't any object of hope horizontally that can give your heart what it needs and what it seeks. Only He's able to give you the rest your soul needs. Only He can author the inner peace and satisfaction that you need. This hope that Paul introduces is a hope that comes or confronts every one of us today. And this is one of the points I wanted to bring us to. My question to you is, if you're hopeful, can you filter back and see what the object of this hope is that you have? Because again, the question originally is, when Jesus came into the earth, and the news that Jesus was born went to everyone. Suddenly, there was a hope that rose. Okay, and my question is, what is the actual hope that we can have now that God is with us, Emmanuel? Or do I have misplaced hope? So the question here is, if your hopes are uncertain, you have to ask yourself, have I placed my hopes on uncertain things and unreliable people instead of on an unchanging and faithful God? Have I misplaced my hopes? This is the question. 
Am I setting myself up for disappointment? Am I setting myself up for an insecure and unstable life because my hopes that drives me are all, are all horizontal instead of vertical? In Romans chapter 12, 12, it says rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. Let me just quickly pause there and tell you what I see happens to us, okay? Now, I'm not preaching. I'm not teaching. I just want to counsel. Is that okay? Okay, this is what I see happens to us as Christians. <clears throat> we misplace our hope. We say, oh, we have great hope. But then when you scratch down to the surface, you find out that that hope was placed upon an object other than God. When you scratch down the surface of a person's hope, you will find that the object of their hope is possibly gold, <laughs> you know, or ETFs. Or the object of their hope is possibly not is possibly not even currencies and stuff like that. It's possibly a person, especially if you're married. Especially if you're married, you. You could possibly have your object of your hope is your spouse. And now you are placing a demand upon that spouse to deliver to you a change that only God can give you. So when you start scratching down to the surface of the hopes that you have, what are you going to find the object of your hope to be? Somebody goes, well... Um, Give me another example. I'll give you an example, okay? Oftentimes what people do is they have hope in their hope. Just stay hopeful. It's going to happen. Just stay hopeful. Well, why should I stay hopeful? Because hopeful people, hopeful people always rise to the top. Just stay hopeful. Well, what is that person doing? That person is encouraging the person to have hope in their hope instead of hope in their God. The object of their hope is their hope. I'll give you another example. Some people who come especially from the word faith movement, they have faith not in God, they have faith in their faith. Why? Because they say, no, I'm going to just stay, I'm going to stay in faith. I'm going to stay in faith. How do you stay in faith? I confess the word. How do you confess the word? My bank is full. My bank is overflowing. My, my credit card is, you know, like, is like paid off. Like, they just keep confessing and confessing and confessing. And you say, what are you doing? I'm exercising my faith. Is this going to work? Yes. Why? Because I have faith. Well, do you realize you have faith in your faith? The object of your faith is your faith, not your God. Why is it going to work? Because I have faith. No. You see, that is misplacing your faith, the object of your faith. It is now your faith and no longer your God. Okay, you get it. It's like this. A person falls in love, and they want to get married. The only little thing here is they don't know this person they're going to marry. How are you in love with them? Oh, I don't know. It just happened. It's just like I walked in, and he walks in, the girl says, and it was love at first sight. Boom. It happened. No, that's not you loving a person. That's you being in love or loving being in love. <laughs> That's you loving the emotion of it. 
You loving the romance of it. You loving the mystery of it. You love, because you don't even know that person. How could you love them? Right? So that person, the object of their love is love. Not the person. And in the same way that people, the object of people's faith is faith, or the object of people's hope is hope, so in the same way, uh, yeah, so in the same way, we have to realize that Abraham, let me bring that in, the Bible says that Abraham had hope against all hope. Abraham, the scripture reads the other way. It says, against all hope, Abraham hoped. Do you know that verse, everybody? Against all hope, Abraham hoped. Against all horizontal objects of hope. Again, there was none. There wasn't one object of hope for Abraham left. His wife was a hundred. He was a hundred. It was impossible for them to have a child. Against all horizontal hope, Abraham vertically hoped because the only object of his hope was God's word who said he was going to have a child. Does that make sense? He could have hope. Why? Because he didn't have any other object of hope left except for God. And so he put his hope in God who said he was going to have a child even though there was no other hope left for him to have a child. So always remember, and that's, that's a great picture of somebody who didn't have misplaced hopes. He couldn't have a misplaced hope. Why? Because... There was no other object upon which you could hope. And oftentimes, God brings you and me into the same scenario where we got no object of hope left other than just God said it. I'm going to have to just rest in it. And it's not true because I keep repeating it. It's true because God said it. How do I know God said it? Because it's actually written. That's how I know God said it. <laughs> right? And so, as I was getting ready and praying through, sharing with you, well, if Jesus brought hope to this world, well, then what hope do we have? What exactly, what exactly can we hope for? What kind of hope can we experience? An exercise. We can experience all the hope that you can place upon this object of your hope, the very Word of God. Why can you hope in it? Because you can believe what it says. Why can you believe what it says? Because you trust His character. So to work it even further, I can rejoice because I have hope. I can hope because I believe. I believe because I trust the one who said it. Now, the object of my hope is God. But it's not true for most of us Christians because we, we rise and fall based on circumstances in life, right? We fall apart when things don't go our way. And we soar when they do because we really are fixated on everything horizontal and we are completely blind to what is vertical. Here Paul says in Romans 12, 12. He says, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. Rejoicing in hope, 
persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, rejoicing in hope. This is the Apostle Paul's great summary of the Christian life. If anybody had to ask me, what's your life verse, Jacques? I would say Romans 12, 12 is my life verse today. Have you ever experienced that? <laughs> Sometimes you have a life verse and then next week you have another life verse. And then you read, read, read. Oh, there's another life verse. All verses are life verses. But this verse right here really encapsulates to me Paul's summary of the Christian life. And one person in scriptures who really lived out this life that Paul encapsulates right here, rejoicing in hope, rejoicing in accurately placed hope, rejoicing in the hope that I have upon the object of God's word, rejoicing in that hope. The one person that really was able to live that out in scriptures is Job. If ever a man was expected to hang in there in his faith in the midst of trial, it was Job. And the story, of course, many of you know, it goes like this. Satan goes to God in heaven and pays him a visit. Can you believe that actually happens? I mean, here's God. Satan comes to see him. God says, you may enter. <laughs> no, actually, that's, that's probably not God. I think that's the devil. He's like, may I enter? <laughs> yes, you may. <laughs> yes, you may. I don't know. Does God have an English accent? I think he does. God doesn't say things like, yeah, I live in Chicago. He doesn't say stuff like that because <laughs> he doesn't live in Chicago. That's why. But yes, Satan comes and he pays God a visit. And he says this to God. God, do you know those people down there? There's no, there's no one faithful to you. They don't serve you. They're all rebellious, just like me. You see, you lost me. Now you lost them. And God says, wait a minute. Have you ever thought of Job? Look at Job. He's faithful. He serves me. Satan goes, well, you don't really have him. You lost me and you lost all the world, including Job. God says, why? He says, well, because he doesn't serve you because of who you are. No, he serves you because of what he can get from you. And God says, hmm, I don't think so. I know it's not true. Let's test him and I'll show you. Satan says, let's test him and I'll show you. God says, okay, well then go ahead. And here we see with God's permission, Satan attacks Job more violently than anyone ever to walk the face of the earth outside of Jesus Christ himself. Not only was Satan now Job's enemy, but God allows the test to go beyond Satan to Job's very wife, who now encourages Job to do the very thing that Satan wants her to do, him to do, and that is to curse God and die because I didn't get what I wanted. I, I was expecting a great life. I mean, you know why I was expecting a great life? Because I'm also a righteous person. They, I actually haven't done anything wrong. 
And his wife says, curse God and die. You're not getting what you deserve. Job says no. His friends then come to him. All three of his best friends. And they encourage him to buy into the idea that Job actually, this is not a test, this is a consequence. If you would repent, things will change for you. It's not because God is good. It's because you're bad. You deserve all of this. You did something. But Job did not, Job did not um, buy into that. In the midst of all of his suffering, at the hands of Satan, permitted by God, at the voice of his wife, influenced by Satan, the bad counsel of his foolish friends, Job makes this statement in the midst of all of his misery, in the midst of all of his loss, in the midst of all of his sorrow. He says in Job 13, Job 13, 15, though he, speaking of God, though God slay me, I will hope in him. I will hope in him. Though he slay, though he does whatever he chooses to do, my hope is placed upon him and nothing else. It makes me think about us as Christians today. The moment things don't go the way we thought God planned for it to go, we try plan B. We look for something else. We look for other options. We put our hope suddenly on everything other than all these different horizontal hopes that we can just to kind of leverage ourselves. Hopefully, if God fails, something else can catch us. Hopefully, if this does not work out, my hope that I've placed upon the object of His promise, I can just grab onto the next branch, my, my horizontal hope called gold or maybe government or maybe you know, the dollar. And so we grab onto other hopes the moment we feel like God is not coming through for us. But here's Job. If anybody could have said God's not coming through for me, it was Job. But Job, in the midst of all of that, he says, okay, I'm still breathing, but even if he slays me, oh, my hope is in him. I will hope in him. Only at that point... Are you able to experience rejoicing in hope? The hope that you have because you believe the promise that has been given, the Word of God, and you can only believe it because you trust God. He trusted God's character enough to believe God and have hope in His only object of hope. Therefore, He could rejoice and even say something like that in the midst of a completely destroyed life. This to me is what Paul was referring when he said, Rejoice in your hope. Rejoice in your hope. That is the only hope you can rejoice in when all other horizontal hopes are gone. Your wife, your friends, your goods, your family, like Job, your health, everything gone, you could still rejoice in your hope because your hope is not misplaced. 
But if your hope is misplaced, it doesn't matter how well it goes with you, you're always going to fall apart over something at some point, somewhere. And then when you die, you lose it all anyhow. And that is the prophecy to the person who hopes in all the wrong things. Disappointment. Guaranteed disappointment. You see, it is easy to rejoice in hope when everything is going your way. It is easy and natural to rejoice in hope when you're riding high. But, when you, but can you rejoice in hope when God is all you have left? Think of this for a moment as we come to a close. That the world's hope dies with them. Your hope, on the other hand, is eternal. Therefore, rejoice. <laughs> we can't rejoice. The world's hope is unsure, unreliable. The object of their hope is everything that's part of the fallen world. Your hope in Christ is as unshakable as Christ Himself. Job had very little joy, but there was still a part of that spirit that rejoiced in the midst of tribulation. And even though Job groaned in his present, he never lost confidence in his future because he knew his hope was in the God who held his future. And that's why you and I can rejoice. I don't know what you're thinking about the probability of a future America. I don't know what your thoughts are. <clears throat> I know people say, well, you know, Revelation doesn't mention America, so it's going to be gone. Well, I don't know. I don't quite re read Revelation that way, but I know some people do. Uh, I don't know what your hopes are for the future of your children in this nation in 20 years, in 30 years. Where are we going to be? If things are as fragile as they are now, is this going to survive? Is this going to last? I don't know what you're thinking about. But family, you and I can rejoice in our hope because the object of our hope is not this democracy. The object of our hope are not these leaders, these people. The object of our hope is, is actually, truthfully, not um, any any writing from our forefathers. The object of our hope is not a court system. The object of our hope is not horizontal at all. The object of our hope is God and His promises. And that's why we can rejoice. We trust His character. That's why we can believe His promise, His word. And now that we believe it, we can have hope. And now that we have hope, we rejoice. And Paul says, rejoice in your hope. Rejoice in your hope. You and I have all the reason in this world to rejoice, even when, even against all hope, you and I hope, just like Abraham. Amen. Amen. Did you get something out of the word today? Amen. Let's give the Lord a praise offering. Thank you, Lord.